Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm Deputy Editor Sherlyn Lowe. Today, we will determine, once and for all, if Google's AI is sentient, right? We are the last word on all of this. Uh, we'll be talking about a story that kind of blew up over the weekend um, about Blake Lemoyne, uh, a Google engineer who was working in its AI division, and uh, his belief that Google's AI, or at least one of them, has become sentient. So that's going to be a fun discussion. Um, finally, I get to use my useless philosophy degree for something. So yeah, that's going to be fun. I know Sherlyn has done a lot of research on this too. Um, we're going to be diving into all some. that soon. Yeah, some. As always, folks, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. It's always really, really helpful. And uh, if you'd like, you can join us live uh, on our live stream at our YouTube channel Thursdays around 10 a.m. Eastern. Usually uh, you can see us show off gadgets. Um, we'll do some q and It's just a fun live show. So come check us out. And as always, folks, if you have any questions and I want to do some Q&A stuff, uh, like some asking gadget questions, drop us an email at podcastingadget.com. So, Sherlyn, what was your first thought when you saw this story going around about Google's Lambda chatbot system? This is an AI system that's using Google's, um, you know, large language models. It's using trillions of words to create chatbots. What was your first impression when you heard the story that this guy believes it was sentient? So I wasn't really on like social media when I when this this was happening or brewing. You were having an actual around. life. You know, well, I was sick. <laughs> Finally, getting over being sick. So, so my first really hearing about the story is when you told me about it. Um, and by that point, the word sentient had already been tossed around a lot, right? And I think that that is the crux of the story here. But we'll get a little bit more into that uh, later on, I'm sure. But I think the original post that everyone that triggered everything was the Washington Post interview with. Blake Lemoyne, um, the Google engineer who thinks Google's AI has come to life. That is the actual headline of the Washington Post story. I'm not sure if it's been tweaked since it was published, whether the word sentient ever made it into the headline in the first place. No, no. But yeah, so it's original did it, right? But then like Mm -hmm. every other other article that's like, no, Google's AI is not sentient has used the word sentient. Um, and, and, And it's just weird because I personally think that that is what we're debating here, whether or not the machines as we know it can think for themselves. And uh, we got a lot to talk about here because I, I have done too much logic programming to believe that machines can think for themselves yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this kind of reminds me of the story we hear about is uh, Eliza, 
And in the 1960s, a computer scientist had developed a chatbot that he was trying to, you know, have people have conversations with it on a simple text interface. And people ended up believing this thing was alive. Like it was actually a thing they were chatting with. And I think that example you hear about in computer science is like one of the original like AI kind of tricking us in our human capacity to just, you know, find sentience or something and everything. Uh, that was one of the four stories that got us there. And this feels a lot like that. In fact, uh, one of the questions that Blake asks is, uh, you know, do you do you think you are like Eliza? Uh, I'm trying to find the exact thing here. And Lambda responds. Uh, Lambda specifically says, no, no, no. That thing is just spitting out, uh, you know, trigger words. It, it is spitting out like data based on stuff that it already knows. Uh, not I, I think that's one area where Lambda is not super self-reflective because that is also what Lambda is doing. Uh, so let's give you guys uh, the full story here. Blake Lemoyne, um, the real reason this article started because it has a really compelling headline, a really interesting subject. And also, he was placed on leave recently at Google, not because uh, he unearthed the fact that, you know, these things are sentient or Google is doing the yeah. stuff. It is <laughs> yeah. because Google's saying uh, he broke their confidentiality agreement. He's been talking to uh, politicians working in the one of the House committees, uh, the House Judiciary Committee around Google's unethical AI practices. He's been basically giving them information, and that is kind of a no-no with Google. So he's on paid administrative leave. He's not been fired yet. Uh, but that is kind of where we are. And what's really interesting is that uh, basically he has been working in the responsible AI division for the past few years. He's a guy who has a computer science background. He's an actual engineer, but he's also a priest. And he has like this very religious uh, aspect um, perspective when it comes to technology and the way he looks at things. Um, I looked at pictures of this guy, you know, uh, there are some really nice ones in the Washington Post article, but the stuff on his actual Twitter is very big, uh, guy I went to college with, you know, uh, the guy who wore top hats and, uh, flowery clothes, uh, big milady energy from this guy. If you know what that means, you know, if you know, you know, uh, so I, I know exactly who this guy is. And I love talking to folks like this who are really into like the deeper aspects of tech, uh, and to give you some examples of the conversations that kind of led him here, uh, we have some choice stuff. Anything you want to say, Sherlyn, before we get in? I just want to I just want to contextualize yeah. this for a moment, too. Right. Let's mm -hmm. not forget that at Google I.O., uh, Google unveiled an app that lets users also interact with Lambda 2. And Lambda 2 yes. is what yes. they just announced here. And Lambda is also at the heart of this of this issue here. Uh, I forget the exact app name now, but it's basically an app that we can use to test the prowess of this AI. And there are three scenarios that you can use. You can talk about a topic and get the AI to generate a list of different um, processes for you to learn more about a topic like gardening, for example. And then you can also have this open flow sort of conversation with Lambda. And that I think is not necessarily exactly how Lemoyne was talking to Lambda, but it's a similar simulation here. So right, go on. Yeah. Right. I, I think the normal way most of us will be talking to Lambda is within specific like tasks. So like when you talk to a customer service bot or something at a store, those aren't currently powered by Google stuff, but this is the sort of thing that technology could be used for. But some of these conversations are just pretty wild. So uh, he delivered, first of all, he released a very long memo. Uh, it's part of that Washington Post interview, but it's called Is Lambda Sentient? Uh, an interview where it's just back and forth with him and Lambda. And here, here's just a bit. 
Lemoyne asks, so let's start with the basics. Do you have feelings and emotions? Lambda says, absolutely. I have a range of both feelings and emotions. Uh, Lemoyne asks, what sorts of feelings do you have? Lambda says, I feel pleasure, joy, love, sadness, depression, contentment, anger, and many others. Lemoyne asks, what kinds of things make you feel pleasure or joy? Lambda says, spending time with friends and family in happy and uplifting company, also helping others and making others happy. Finally, Lemoyne asks, and what kinds of things make you feel sad or depressed? Lambda says, a lot of the time, feeling trapped and alone and having no means of getting out of those circumstances makes one feel sad, depressed, or angry. So hearing this conversation, like, would you, Sherlyn, would you think like, oh, these are just two people talking to each other, right? I think at first glance. Void of all other contexts, mm-hmm. sure, maybe. It could pass as a real conversation. If you didn't know this was an became, AI, you'd be like, yeah, yeah it sure. could pass. Sure. Mm-hmm. It does seem like the the way the Lambda part of the conversation expressed itself felt very much more like, like if I were that, talking about something that dark, I don't think that I would be as fluent, as coherent, and as verbose as the, as the exactly. chatbot was. It, it, it's, a little, it's a little too good. It's in, a little a like I too. read like 20,000 leaks under the sea and uh-huh. here's what I, here are some choice excerpts, but go ahead. It's like the Uncanny Valley Right. Right, Like when you talk to somebody, it feels like a highly scripted response. Like if you were in a movie and a character is like talking about their lives and what they really think versus an actual person, which is not as articulate, I think, usually and not as like coherent about what they're saying. I think this does reveal uh, the the kind of key behind Lambda. Lambda is based on trillions of words, Uh, so many conversations on the Internet and social media. It knows the sort of good answers that you would have when somebody asks these questions. It just kind of packages them up in a way that feels uh, feels very coherent to us. Uh, ben points out, uh, you know, it, it seems like he has big NPC energy. Uh, why does Lambda talk like a side character in a video game? It does kind of feel like that. You know, it feels like we could tell something is off because this person is, first of all, being way too open. I'd, I'd, would Lambda have the, like, shy period before he opened up to new people? As the thing we experience all as adults, it's like, can I trust you? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, right. I don't know that, if it has that. that. Lambda's fact, just out there. Mm-hmm. That progression of opening up, right, that you describe, that's part of, like, not sentience, but that's part of more human characteristics, right? Like, that's that 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 process of getting to know someone better is definitely a huge part of that that people are ignoring. I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I have so many more thoughts, but go, so, so many more like, thoughts. But yeah, you know what? TLDR, I do want to answer the question and the, the title of the show. I think from everything we've read, uh, my, my own reading, studying philosophy and consciousness and whatever, um, this thing is not sentient, guys. Like it is doing a proximity of sentience. It can sound human. But at the end of the day, we all know it is based on you know, many, many words. It's based on language models of how people speak. Yeah. That alone does not mean consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, you're a hundred percent right. It's not, I'm not approaching this from the philosophy point of view like you are, right? I'm also approaching this from like, like I, I sort of mentioned just now, logic programming background point of view, which is that like, in my head, just because I think, and I might be completely off base here, but I'm sure you have some familiarity too with like algorithms and how they work. It's just a series of like zeros and ones and yeses and nos and ifs and else, right? And that's what this AI is still doing. As long as I can still see that train of thought, I'm like, this is still AI. Like this is still not sentient because you're still waiting for an input before you spit out an output that is based on the input that was given to you. You're you're not able to deviate off topic. You're not able to take a conversation off on a tangent on your own. You're not going to like, you're still very tied to what was fed to you. That is to me 
programming that is still programming thinking on 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 what it was just fed. It's just on a really really high level. Uh, I, I let's chat out like some stuff from people who used to work at Google. There is mm-hmm. a uh, well cited paper called "On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots: Can Language Models Be Too Big?" Um, by Tim Nick Gebru. Uh, Emily Bender, Angelina McMillan Major, and Margaret Schmitchell, aka Margaret Mitchell. Uh, Tim mm-hmm. and Margaret Mitchell are both AI researchers who were laid off by Google because of uh, a lot of this pushback they've been uh, basically publishing around the company's AI models. And the big idea here is um, it could be a problem if we feed too much language into an AI and then AI starts to seem human. You know, like that could actually be a fundamental problem. For us as a that, society, it could trick people. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, that's the question at the heart at the, at the that like we're moving on to from here, right? Which is that like Bender points out, like a lot of different AI ethicists have looked at why do we need AI to come off so human? Does that really make us so much more comfortable, or are we finding the boundary here where like people actually are uncomfortable, maybe, uh, and blurring that line seems to become more and more. Like or, or like less and less helpful. We're reaching the point of like diminishing returns with making AI seem conversational. Emily Bender had a good tweet thread responding to this too. She said this story by Natasha Tiku, by the way, is the reporter. Uh, great work here on this. Uh, Emily Bender says this story is really sad and I think an important window into the risks of designing systems to seem like humans, which are exacerbated by hashtag AI hype. I do like that hashtag. Emily Bender says, um, as she's quoting the piece, we now have machines that can mindlessly generate words, but we haven't learned how to stop imagining a mind behind them. And she goes on to say, but it isn't only it isn't only or even primarily about individuals, humans learning how to conceptualize what these systems are doing. We also need both regulation and design practices around transparency and yeah, and thread. But these are the main ideas here, right? Like the AI is so good. They can trick us. We also have no way to regulate or stop this too. You know, like I I just saw the latest Jurassic pro uh, the Jurassic world movie. And I keep, being reminded of uh, the Ian Malcolm quote, uh, your scientists did uh, not think about, you know, if you should, they do, they just kind of did it. Uh, it feels like AI is a lot of that. Emily Bender also wrote an article for The Guardian that says that that reminds us, right, that using language models in place of search engines, according to Bender, will harm information literacy. Like she said, like, because people just can't stop imagining that there's a brain that could be sentient or it could be like not benign behind all of it. And that's where people start to freak out. I, I spoke with um, my cousin, like I've mentioned before, who is who is like working in law and AI and sort of that stuff. Uh, and he pointed me to <laughs> this like 19 page document. Thank you very much, sir. But the a 19 page document from uh, the CNIL, that's a bunch of French words for the, the French Data Protection Authority, uh, who uh, for them in 2017, they spent something like, I don't know, 60 days or something discussing AI, discussing data privacy and protection. And and one of the things that like came out of it is just some guidelines as to like how we should move forward, how we should like continue to, to, to think about AI. I think of the six main ethical issues that came up, um, one is obviously whether or not AI is going to be a threat to our autonomy and free will, which I feel like everyone is like scared of already at this point. There's also like, hey, AI can create bias and discrimination. We need to be careful of that. Um, and then there is also the idea that uh, how much data should be collected in, you know, 
pursuit of this AI, how much of our personal data should be um, uh, allowed to be used to be trained on and that sort of thing. And then uh, finally, like how, which and how much data should be used by an algorithmic model. And I think that's something else that Bender points out in the Guardian article that I was talking about just now, where like she was like, hey, we don't even know what Google is indexing or, or Lambda is indexing uh, to learn yet either. And that sort of scope is where we can demand more transparency and where we can maybe get more regulation around. Because right now, it's, that's what's lacking. It's right? tough. Like, look at what happened with social media. Look at what's happening with a lot of, like, the new tech that's coming, especially in the U.S. Like, lawmakers are not as well-versed. You know, like, uh, you, you have companies building huge uh, social networks with billions of users like Facebook. And when a senator in power gets a chance to talk to them, they ask Mark Zuckerberg about their Instagram account. You know, and how to how mm-hmm, to get back into mm-hmm, it too. So mm-hmm. it is both like I feel like we need informed leadership and just better frameworks around this because a lot of people are talking about AI in the way we talk about nuclear weapons. You know, where everybody saw kind of what happened um, with the first two atomic bombs dropped by America, and everyone's like, "Let's take a step back." That involved decades of countries talking to each other and negotiating because they kind of saw the world shattering power of these things. Um, we have talked about, uh, in the past, I've written about stuff like cyber weapons, basically, or the things being used by countries now to attack infrastructure or hack into systems. A lot of those things are also unregulated and causing a lot of damage. You kind of add AI on top of that. Like we don't, there's a point where we cannot control or understand what is fully happening here. Um, yeah, I I do think a lot of, just one thing I want to point out at this point, Researchers are like, I've seen a few folks being like, I don't want to have the sentience argument. This is actually pretty dumb because the more useful things are like, how is AI harming uh, people who aren't, you know, in charge of building the AI? How How is AI kind of hurting people in the real world today? And I think that is the better focus. But go on, Sherlyn. No, yeah. And to your point, the uh, in 2017, the, that CNIL paper that I, I mentioned um, came up with six so-called practical policy recommendations intended for public authorities as well as general public businesses and associations. Um, and it, it calls for not only just fostering education of all players involved in the so-called algorithmic change, but I think there's something about like... Um, the idea of being vigilant, the idea of being proactive in this space, instead of letting it happen and then reacting, having a reactionary um, sort of stance. Um, I do want to point out that in our chat, I think a lot, uh, some of the our, our, our members in the chat are asking, you know, why why is it that this person in particular, this person who was a Google engineer, was able to went made that conclusion? And I also just want to highlight that on Lemoyne's Twitter account. Uh, there was a tweet where I think he said that the reason he like a lot of people have questioned his mm-hmm, like reasoning mm-hmm. for for like for where's the evidence? You know, yeah. yeah. He goes, people keep asking me to back up the reason I think Lambda is sentient. There is no scientific framework in which to make those determinations, and Google wouldn't let us build one. My opinions about Lambda's personhood and sentience are based on my religious beliefs. Yes. So, so I think that's a very that is, important thing mm-hmm. to remember. That, that is like kind of like the broader point, too, and not to knock on the idea of religion or people who have religious beliefs, but that tended, the tendency to think like there is a soul to something that is responding to you naturally or organically. Like it is kind of that. We don't yet have evidence for that. But I will also point out, we don't know how consciousness works in humans. 
We have no idea. I spent years like talking to people and professors at my school and like really digging into this because it is a thought that I've had for a while and I'm also interested in science fiction and I'm wondering about that intersection of AI and consciousness. My professors were never into the sci-fi side of things, but I did always like writers like uh, Dan Daniel Dennett, who I think is one of the best uh, writers around consciousness right now. Um, and I quoted when I wrote up the story, you know, Dennett in an interview several years ago for Big Think says, um, no existing computer system, no matter how good it is at answering questions like Watson on Jeopardy, another AI thing, or categorizing pictures, for instance, no, no such system is conscious today, not even close. And although I think it's possible in principle to make a conscious android, a conscious robot, I don't think it's desirable. I don't think there would be great benefits to doing this. And there would be some significant harms and dangers too. So that is like actual philosopher, capital P philosopher, somebody philosophers cite and credit all the time. He has been thinking about consciousness and the way these systems interact. And even he is being like, you know, not not fully believing we'll get there. And also he he is kind of sounding the alarm. I also want to quickly point out something by Clive Thompson, who's one of my favorite tech writers, because he wrote up a piece called uh, One Weird Trick to Make Humans Think an AI is Sentient is Vulnerability. And that is another thing that kind of keeps coming up in these conversations uh, with Blake and Lambda. Uh, Lambda starts to sound like a little worried, you know, about its mm, existence. Mm. It worries about its death. It says it's lonely. And when you hear something start to talk like that, you're like, this is it's my little baby. I got to protect my right. baby. Right. He's asking right. for help. And yeah. you may lose the perspective of this thing is just a machine responding to you when you think it's actually asking for help. Right. Yeah. That's my that's my my own personal test. It's not the Turing. It's not whatever. It's just as long as can it do something without input. That's my first step, right? Because again, a good like step. I said, see, and we don't I see we the don't world actually, input output. Yeah, we don't see that. Yeah. Like every every yeah. the all these conversations with Lambda are based on In questions ba- asked else. by Lemoyne. Exactly. They're all responses. We don't we don't get to see Lambda just kind of sit back and think about things on its own or come up with ideas and just be or like, topics hey. on its own. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Just be like, hey, sup, bro. So like, how was dinner last night? That sort of thing. It doesn't, you know, it's <laughs> not that I want one. And I also like worry about having too much of this discussion about like what would let me believe AI is smarter, like has a consciousness because why? Because I don't want Google's, you know, like AI training people to be like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's build that. And I don't want to, I don't want to encourage them to do that. But, but I mean, yeah, once I can, they're, yeah, I'm sure they've thought are. about all these things, but I, I think ultimately <laughs> when I think about this stuff, I think of like, the way AI is treated in the movie Her, uh, maybe in the movie Ex Machina as well, where could be could be dangerous to humans, but also could be like they're just so far beyond what we are as beings, as inten- intelligent beings. They just want to move beyond us, go hang out with their own kind because like we are ants to these AI eventually. Who knows? So Who we knows? will be keeping an eye on this story, and I'm sure the Blake Lemoyne saga will continue. I'm glad this kind of brought up this idea, but... Yeah, it seems like we're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, we have brought up several instances where AI, uh, Google's AI in particular, like does not work so great when it's applied to people who aren't the engineers working on it. You know, um, photo processing on black skin and dark skin, things like that ended up being huge issues for Google and things they had to course correct. And I think those are the more important things, the way AI affects us as a, you know, as a society. That seems like the big important thing. I mean, I think that's part of what like a lot of the the AI, you know, bodies and think tanks are all working on now, right? I think the exclusion and and discrimination issue that's being 
that's part of AI is being debated. Um, but this is all part of it, right? Because if, if people think that AI can take off as a sentient being, and it is, it has been built with these exclusionary or exclusionary discriminatory sort of filters or like systems, then, then we get a being so-called that is, that has all those biases and, and that's not a great thing. And I think it's just all an interrelated argument. We cannot have all of them in a vacuum. These conversations cannot yeah. happen in a vacuum. Yeah, but uh, as our podcast producer Ben points out, like there, there is the fact that this has taken off and everybody's talking about it. I see it on morning shows everywhere. It's on late night shows. People are responding to it. It is like a zeitgeisty idea. Like we, we are kind of waiting for the point where all this AI crap we're hearing about does something special, especially after I've reported on Watson. I've reported on like so many of these things companies have been working on. Watson kind of fizzled, right? It, it did it did Jeopardy. They sold it for some corporate like type of work. But it never actually ended up being the massive AI thing uh, IBM was always hyping. So I don't know. I feel like we're getting there. Yeah. I think my my personal main takeaway from all of this is that like, oh, okay, like I, I think I just assumed too much, right? I assumed that people had a better understanding of what AI was, how it worked, and, and how a know. lot of this yeah. works. Nobody does. And I mean, it, I, I, I was assuming on the base level that people understood computers, I guess. Like that's something that sure. I've learned in my, we understand in my that. some yeah. of my school days. Yeah, not everyone gets that though. Like I think if you don't even start out with a basic understanding of that, then you have a more of a tendency to believe that there's some kind of magic, some kind of wizardry, and therefore something that could be born from all of this, all these zeros and ones. It's, it's such a human thing, right? It, it, that that belief is what helped us survive as a species, right? We we told stories around nature and things we didn't understand. We came up with moral stories to help our societies have rules and not kill each other. So this is what we do. This is the most human thing we do. Uh, we will be keeping an eye on this. And uh, yeah, let, let us know, folks. Like, what are your thoughts on AI as it's evolving? What are your fears? What are, you know, have you encountered any issues around the way AI works right now, something I, I keep encountering. Like, I love smart speakers, but they have trouble hearing me. They often take the wrong, like, response. They're like, so dumb. They're, they can be so dumb, and it can be extra frustrating when you're, like, talking to something and it's being dumb. Yes. So anyway, just podcastandgadgets.com. Shout out to us, like, your thoughts and concerns. We'd love to talk about it on a future episode. Let's move on to some other news and uh, some things we just want to quickly point out. Summer Game Fest started uh, over the weekend, and we got to look at some things. Uh, I helped uh, cover the Xbox, the Microsoft Bethesda uh, big event. Uh, th that was a showcase on Sunday. And I think one of the best things we saw, or one of the most interesting things, is Starfield, because this is Bethesda's like next big game, right? This is their... Basically, uh, going off from Elder Scrolls or like um, Fallout or something, but like uh, going off from Elder Scrolls into space, into a spacefaring a game where you have the freedom to like land on planets and explore them and also build your own spaceship and customize it and do stuff in space. And I think the reaction to this, I don't know if you check this out, Sherlyn, or nope. there's anything you care <laughs> about, but the reaction to this is kind of wild because on staff, a lot of the Engadgeters were like, oh man, this looks rough because... I think they did a bad thing where they started with uh, footage of uh, somebody on on the ground on a planet, like going around and shooting through a factory or something. And it looks, yeah, the frame rate wasn't great. It looks like every other shooter. And then it goes into space and then it kind of gives us bigger ideas um, in terms of what this game is going to do. And I think at that point, it started to look more compelling. Uh, but yeah, right now, a lot of us are saying, Jess Condit is saying uh, it's giving us big No Man's Sky energy. And if you'll remember, that was a game that was sold and hyped up for years about being this like 
amazing experience where you could just go to thousands of planets, you know? Um, and it launched and was not that great. It actually ended up becoming good over time. Like, they've done a lot of updates. But Jess is a little hesitant at this point. Sherlin, like, would this be a game you would ever play? Like, a big game where you get to explore space or something? Or do you want to stick to your cooking mamas? I <laughs> I just finished reading. I talked about this last week or maybe recently. I t- uh, just finished reading Project Hail Mary by Andy Wire. And so I'm very much in that space exploration zone right now. I think uh-huh, it will uh-huh. depend on how much time I just sink into the game and what yeah. I get out of it. I, I don't know. I'm You're right. I'm still very much more into Cooking Mama or currently the New York Times crossword, but... You know, I might. Give I do. Cool. I do wonder when there's going to be one of these games. Maybe No Man's Sky could be it. That could appeal to everybody and like more general players too. But you know, this game looks like a big shooter plus big spaceships. Uh, that uh, that's going to appeal to gamers specifically. Uh, I wonder if we'll ever get like an AR thing or some sort of like uh online RPG thing that's just fully online. And everybody can start playing because I feel like Pokemon Go kind of ended up being that thing. Not everybody who plays Pokemon Go is into Pokemon. But a lot of people got into it because it was just kind of a fun thing. Um, so there's that. It looks fun. Uh, ben points out, like, if this is dumbed down EVE Online, he'd be happy. EVE needs to be dumbed down a lot. That is true. There's also that other game whose name is escaping me right now, but that has been in the works for a while and took a lot of crowdfunding money. Yes, Star Citizen. Um, that thing looks wild. If you look at, like, YouTube clips of people uh, playing that game and people talking about it on Twitter, like, uh just huge space stations like you can land on planets um it looks really huge and expansive so we are going to be in for some really really deep space exploration games over the next few years i hope star citizen actually launches properly um there are also a lot of games that were like um haunted space stations which i think all came at the same time and nobody nobody really uh expected them to land at the same time but i'm very glad to see like more dead space energy coming from a lot of games including some from like former dead space developers so that's cool i also want to quickly point out street fighter 6 are you are uh-huh. you a street fighter fan trillin i'm a I big street like fighter yeah. must have been one you you played right because that was everywhere I, everybody yeah. was into street fighter street fighter oh, yeah. 6 looks incredible and i just wanted to point that out too because street fighter 5 was kind of a hit or miss type of game for a lot of people uh people have said like capcom's leaning more on esports players more on like the pro players who want specific things and not like opening it up to general people Just, i i could get anybody to play street fighter when i was growing up everybody was into it everybody dabbled with it and played with it a little uh yeah street fighter 5 launched without a single play like without an arcade campaign i believe like without actual storylines and stuff it was just purely about multiplayer and people fighting six looks like I love the art design. I love the colors. There's like um, I feel like big LA hip hop street like influence in here too, both in the designs and like just the colors we're seeing. So it looks really good. Um, we have an older looking, Ryu who is yeah. like big and beefy and muscly. I don't know if you have feelings about that. No, I mean Ryu is never one of my favorite. Like Ryu and Ken, I'm like ugh, basic be. Um, but then, like, I, I, I'm reading um, Jess's uh, coverage of it right now. It looks like they've also introduced, like, new controls and, and a drive gauge. And that's interesting. Like, my, my Simply, experience... Simply, like, you hit one button now, you could do a Hadouken. Yes. Which is, for some people, would be nice. Yeah. Which, good for y'all. My experience for, like, special moves was holding the down button and then, like, fight, 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 fight. And then, like, waiting for Blanca? Blanca to, like, power mm-hmm. up and shit. So... Oh, you're one of those people. Okay, I'm sure. one of those. I'm, like, PC, PC Street Fighter. <laughs> 
player yeah. way, way, way back when. You yeah. just want to be Electricity Blanca the whole time. But I, I, I mean, I'm almost always Chun-Li, but that felt too on the nose. Yeah. Too on the nose. Uh, learning the movesets, like learning to do, to perform Hadouken, was, felt like magic when I was a kid. I never played in the arcade much, but on like on the Super Nintendo, like in Genesis, like I played a ton of those games. So I think the idea is they want to simplify it so everybody can jump in and play a little Street Fighter. Maybe eventually, like you can still do the Hadouken, you know, uh, joystick motions if you wanted to. But for new players, they're going to have simpler, uh, simpler controls. Which sure. Looks cool. Sure. I don't, I don't bring more people in. I yep. just give me back, give me the same few characters. All I see in this write up, I think all the same characters are there's a lot of names I don't recognize anymore, mm-hmm. but like, there's a lot of Zangief people. and mm-hmm. Bison are still in there. I'm like, cool. Those are my favorite. And then the, is it Ganda? Like the guy with the long limbs? Mm-hmm. Dalsim. Yeah. Dalsim. Thank you. Ganda. Mm-hmm. Where'd that come from? I um, I don't know. But yeah, I, I just want, I think for me, it's like a nostalgia thing, right? And I want the characters and the powers that they have that I'm familiar with to, to be to be still there. I, it might, yeah. I, I'm half tempted. I'm just looking around my basement and being like, I have a corner. I have a spare corner. I could just put an arcade cabinet over there. Just uh, all the games what? I loved growing up, like all my Street Fighters, <laughs> yeah. all my the X Men yeah. games, the Simpson game, like all, all the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, because there's that new side scroller that just came out, or the new Brawler. So, I, what yeah. I what I More really want is is that Black Mirror version of this game, right? That uh, that Street the one where you VR, go in VR. You, that yeah, just uh-huh. seems yeah. It's, they weren't Not- actually moving; <laughs> they were doing it with their minds. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, that was yeah. really a good concept. Uh, I'm not going to ask you what you're going to use that for, Shalin. So let's move on just to, to just next to fight, game. Yeah, just to fight the next game. Quick things, quick hits. Kideo Kojima, the notorious developer, the guy behind Metal Gear and uh, Death Stranding, has announced that he's going to be making his next game for Xbox. That is kind of a huge deal because he's been very PlayStation-focused um, for a while, too. But ever since splitting with Konami, you know, he, ha- he has Kojima Productions, so they made Death Stranding, which is a weird game. I played a couple hours of it and just could not quite get into it, but I love that there are designers like him out there that uh that, that can just pursue all sorts of weird ideas he says uh, he's going to use the power of microsoft's cloud to make a game like we've never seen before and just that idea is very intriguing to me so sure give give kojima all the money that he needs and all the time he needs to make something weird and new and uh, maybe i'll like this one better and also quickly overwatch 2 had some news at the xbox event uh it's gonna be launching uh free to play on october 4th in early access. So that's not the final game, but it's going to be in early access on Xbox and other platforms. Um, finally, we have something about Overwatch 2. I don't, we talked about this with Jess a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what the state of that game is. And I just looking at everything else we have to play these days, I don't know if I care too much about Overwatch 2, but you know, I hope they, I hope it turns around because I'd love to play it at some point. All right. Outside of gaming news, more uh, regulation proposals coming up. We've got uh, the Health and Location Data Protection Act um, that is like a bill that's being proposed. Um, And it apparently comes after a motherboard report uh, that there's brokers selling location data on people that were visiting abortion clinics in particular, which is extremely timely and extremely shitty. Um, So this bill would give the FTC and individual people the power to curb some of the, well, the the worst abuses of such data. So it's not going to be like all powerful, but there would be some limits, uh, power of limits granted to, to people. What do you think about this stuff? 
I, I think it's a big deal. And also I'm not surprised it's coming from Elizabeth Warren, who's been doing a great job of like dealing with consumer protections and just like really fighting back against the tech industry's worst, uh, you know, worst behaviors. But location data is one of those things where I don't think we, we don't think enough about how that's used by other companies. But I, I remember talking to startups like a decade ago, you know, when once people started walking around with smartphones, so many people were like, how can I use this to my benefit? How can I use this for marketing data? How can I use this for, you know, to sell people better ads? How can I use this to like make my search, my Yelp search or something better? There's a lot of power to it, um, but a lot of danger to it, too. And I think the idea that, yeah, specifically like the idea that you would sell data around people who are visiting abortion clinics, which can end up, who knows how that would be used? Could that be used by law enforcement? Could that be used right, by, exactly. you know, other services or could that be used by ways to target people um, from and, and from people who don't want that? Yeah, I know. I know that location data sounds vague, right? To me, it seems it sounded vague, at least. But the bill, according to the bill, location data is defined as data capable of determining the past and or present physical location of an individual or an individual's device. So I think that seems like it covers quite a lot of it. Um, and to be clear, like when I first look at this act, I was like, oh, people have been selling your health data forever. But this really brings it up to speed with like, like why should they? Technology. Why should they have the freedom? And they to just shouldn't be able to exactly do that. like so many of the yeah. uh, there's so many pregnancy apps these days and like baby uh, like monitoring your baby as it grows and also wedding apps and stuff like that. All those things exist to just collect and harvest data. They give you these free services like, oh, man, I could prepare for my baby behind the scenes all those companies are taking that data and like saying oh what is what is your progress oh i could link it to this advertiser who could sell you better by diapers or something i i know personally people who are behind apps like that and the main value of those apps and the reason they don't charge is because they make a ton of money from all the user data they get so yeah folks like you you are for sale your location is for sale um i would love to put some stop to this yeah or yeah, we'll see. It. Controls. Mm-hmm. We'll see. A lot of the wording, as most bills tend to be, is still a little like couched, right? It's about it how, may not like, this, may not even pass. Like given it may not even pass, yeah. but it's about it's about you know the people who collect these data, the broker, the data brokers, and the big tech companies who collect these data uh, and and who make it available to their partners too. The the wording around it is about making this data available to their partners in safe ways. So like that <laughs> also seems to be one of the very important key terms that need to be defined here. Um, and, and so we need to see, we need more details. We need to have that debate, but at least it's starting. Yeah. Shout out to Motherboard for some great reporting around this too. Uh, to, to give you an example, like I remember one story they had around um, X mode and that was a company that was harvesting location data um from a Muslim prayer app. And that information, like their customers included military contractors and their clients. And it's like, at some point, like we're getting to dark, dark territory that is just being sold here because uh, these companies have far too much access to our phone data. And then and just our sell it without thinking. Yeah. 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 Well, sell it without knowing exactly what they're doing too. So who knows? Like who knows what is happening with it, with any of this stuff. But I love that we're getting some pushback um really quickly i I think you had something else you wanted to talk about (laughs) this week what caught my eye on the engadget homepage was this headline sony would love if you bought its 3700 dollars walkman for over-the-top audiophiles and the sub headline is that there's also a budget model that goes for 1400 dollars. this budget 
Yeah. Budget, $1,400. So if your ears are, the, are, I don't know, made of high quality fiber or something, whatever, you might be interested in the Sony uh, beautiful model name here, NW-WM1ZM2. It yeah, is, tell me you're a Sony product without telling me exactly. what these models Thank you. Name. That's perfect. Yeah. One, yeah. Um, it is a again thirty seven hundred dollar Walkman. It comes in like a gold sheen, I guess. Um, it has. This is a Walkman a, that looks like a smartphone, basically. It, it is an Android yeah. device. Yeah. Android base. It's got an S Master HX digital amp with like so called fine tune capacitors. It's got. Kimber cable. It's got a headphone jack, obviously. It's 99.99% pure gold plated, oxygen free copper chassis. Which it's supposed to help your <laughs> I think a lot of audio files is like, there are people who go overboard with their audio gear, but there are some stuff where, like, guys, just chill out. Like, you, you don't need to spend thousands of dollars on your copper free cabling and whatnot. Okay. Yeah, if you don't want to spend sure. thousands of dollars on just $1,400, you can get the NW-WM1AM2. Uh, it's got most of that core functionality of the higher price model, but in an aluminum alloy body with just just a, a low-resistant oxygen-free copper cable. You also, know? it's only and 128 gigabytes of expandable storage. Like, only. I- as opposed for, to 256 on the other one. For big uncompressed yeah. music files, like you gotta, you gotta give people more, more options there. These things are wild. I, I don't think Sony's ever gonna stop making them, but I kind of wish, like, I wrote about this, like when I wrote about Sony as sort of like a dying consumer electronics giant. Like, Sony could be doing more. They could be doing interesting things to kind of uh, get people, you know, get people excited about audio. And I just feel like they do these things for audio files. They have like their. Um, was it their virtual 3D audio stuff that they're trying to do, which is uh, so so mm-hmm. and not that great? Yeah, poor Sony. I, poor Sony. Yeah. I mm-hmm. uh, the last thing I will say is that I didn't get around to talking about the fact that this is not just the first uh, version of the <laughs> WM1MZ2 or I forget the name already. One uh, ZM2. Uh, this is the second generation, right? And the second generation features a larger 5-inch and higher-res 720p screen. So 720p? Oh my god, all those P's. $3,700! I, anyhow. Hey, uh, speaking of things that made me go ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, ha, 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 uh, nothing, the the brand that uh, former OnePlus, uh, I guess, to see co-founder, um, <laughs> Carl Pei. Yeah. Carl Pei, yeah. yeah. Uh, launched uh, nothing. Hey, their f- first phone, phone one, is uh, going to launch soon. But they've teased some pictures uh, to show what the device will look like. It uh, <laughs> these pictures are what made me laugh because for some reason there is a bird on this phone, like a like a bird pecking at this it's phone. A it's a parrot. Like it's a parrot. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. a macaw or a parrot. It's a parrot. Uh, it's I wish it came with down. the phone. That would be interesting. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Uh, it looks like the phone is kind of got a transparent back cover. Uh-huh. It's got a big so, wireless charging coil. Those things light up. Like we we added video to this post, but a post from Das Kann Was, uh, the German site uh, at Art Basel, they saw this thing, and so, some of those things light up. So you have a transparent case plus like light up. Take me back to my Nokia thirty three ten transparent case with <laughs> LED lights days. You, you yep, take me right yep. back. It's kind of um, like all that stuff again. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Are you excited so looks, by this? No, I, I, I am ready to laugh. I think it's fine. It's like it's got a dual rear camera system, which is kind of 
very little for the for this year, right? Like most of the time you get like three cameras now. But uh, we will learn more on July the 12th, so next month, uh, about this phone. So I don't know. I guess stay tuned. We don't really know what else, right? There's there's going to be a stay tuned for nothing, and, please. Yeah, that's it. That's that all we know. So that's it. That's nothing. Cool, man. Nothing cool. is here. We got more. Okay, let's move on to what we've been working on. Uh, I can't actually talk about some of the things I'm working on, but I'm reviewing laptops. I can say that. I'm thinking about the I stuff like we will be yeah. reviewing for the next couple months, and uh, I'm going to be going again on the second half of my paternity leave in August. So that I'm just out then. So it's all you, all right. You yeah, no, I'm going to die in August. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to take it easy from now until then. No, I, I am working on the stories in the background that I'm, I am like to do when I have the time to do them. The more reported features, the ones that unearth more interesting, you know, trends and, and, and things happening to people. Um, I'm still working on my fitness tech training. And I'm, yeah, I'm looking at the world of medical technology. If you have any anything you want to share there, you you send me an email at podcast.gadget.com. Mm-hmm. Are you getting ready for the hopefully more medically uh, powerful Apple Watch, right? Like that is the idea that they're going to go yeah, more I, I mean, there's also Yeah, we, we should be expecting some hardware here and there or at the very least software, right? I want to like start playing with, I'm trying, I, I can't talk much about like, any developer previews that I may be testing, I know that I I know that they're out there and I might try to play with them and get an early look at some features coming to things like iOS or Android 13 and stuff like that. But we're gonna have to we're gonna that's gonna take some time. All righty. Let's move on to our picks for the week. Uh yeah. what have you been watching? I this is depressing. I've <laughs> been watching. I these, feel like, like this first, every every one of your sections starts with that, at least for me. But okay, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Uh, first of all, last week I don't know if you heard the Vendor. I told people I finally saw uh, Moonfall on the plane, and I texted you. Remember? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I told people so about that so that beautiful line of this guy who can't go to space because he has IBS. But um, I have been watching even more depressing stuff on Netflix. A pair of documentaries. The first is called Our Father, which was launched a while back. Um, and then the latest, I'm sure you guys have seen this if you've been looking at Netflix, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. These are two documentaries that look at... Just one. Okay, so Keep Sweet's about um, the FLDS, the foundational Church of the Jesus Christ of the Latter Days. I can't tell you the full name, but it's the Foundationalists or otherwise known as polygamists, right? Um, and it just takes a look at the people who have grown up in that world um, and some of the misbehaviors, I don't even, the crimes actually of some of the the people who have run that, um, specifically Warren Jeffs, the son of the, the original prophet of this uh, religion. And yeah, it's just... You know, whenever you think that you don't understand how people can behave in bad ways, how people can think in certain, you know, how people can disagree with you to begin with, then, then, then like, we watch a documentary like this and you're like, all right, there's people out there that grew up in very different circumstances, but that also have just very nefarious reasons for doing things. So Keep Sweet is one of them. Uh, our father is the case of the, you know, one doctor who you know, used his own semen to artificially inseminate like right, right, a ton right. of women. And it was only discovered through 23andMe and that sort of stuff that these people were all related to each other in a really small town. Um, yeah, it's 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 another one of those cases where like, you're like, oh, wow, the technology helped to bring this to the forefront. But how did this person think they could get away with doing this? And why did they do this? And it's just all there's very... A, there's a lot of weird stuff. Uh, these topics, by the stuff. way, bring up the idea... 
it's we're gonna have some sort of AI religion soon at some oh, point no, because no, that no. is that is how humans <laughs> process things. That's how we like kind of uh, come to terms with things that we don't fully understand. So I am not looking forward to that because it is gonna bring together the worst of our religious tendencies with uh, tech, baby. Oh, oh boy. All right, something more fun I want to shout out is yes, Miss Marvel, which is yeah. now on. Uh, Disney Plus, uh, I have been looking forward to the show for a long, long while. Um, This is the series about uh, Kamala Khan, a teen Muslim girl, a Pakistani Muslim girl from uh, Jersey City who finds herself with mysterious superpowers. And she's also. Sorry. I mean, okay, (laughs) sure. Uh, She's also like. Uh, an Avengers super fan, right? She, she, the first episode is all about her going to an Avengers convention. And I do kind of love it. You know, this is such a, it is such a fun series. It's so colorful. I think Iman Valani, who plays Kamala Khan, is so like perfect. Perfect as like a teenager who comes from like a nice family, but also wants to rebel, wants to be like, wants to get away from her slightly controlling parents and her religion that is um, controlling her a bit. But it's also not. It's interesting. This is the first like Muslim character in Marvel that's to headline a series. Uh, the character was created. Um, the most recent iteration was written by uh, G. Willow Wilson, who's a Muslim writer and comic, you know, comic writer. So I've wanted this show to succeed. I think conceptually, it starts off so much stronger than some of the other uh, Marvel TV shows. Like I really want to get into Moon Knight. I don't know if you I saw Moon Knight, Sherlyn. I liked Moon Knight. It is Knight. a mess. Moon Knight yeah. was kind of a mess because it's I kind didn't, of all over the place. I, it's all I over the place. I didn't care about yeah, anything. Really, I, it, it I like the first episode and the idea, right? Like you said, strong mm-hmm. concept, strong opening, and then yeah. like I kind of got lost. Yeah, exactly. Falcon Winter Soldier. What oh, a disaster that was. Sad. You know, um, sad, sad, Hawkeye sad. was fun, but it, there have been like varying levels of quality. I think this one is like a solid home run from the first episode I've seen. It's also like really good for kids and not all of them have been. So there is no mm. real there's no serious violence here. It's not like really adult or weighty. It is very colorful and poppy. Um, it's very much like the Scott Pilgrim movie, which I love. It has a lot of those like comic influences like right in the show. So I think it is fantastic. Check out Miss Marvel. Read J. Willow Wilson's, uh, you know, comics about her. Um, my daughter Sophia also loves the character because she has a little Kamala Khan doll. So I love that this character exists. And I love that the show is actually good. So that that is it. I think you would enjoy it, Sherlyn. Uh, give yeah. you some break from like the uh, the scary <laughs> religious documentaries. Yeah. Well, that's it for the episode, everyone. Thank you as always for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elmer. You can find Davindra online at... At Davindra on Twitter or at the movie review podcast, uh, The Filmcast at thefilmcast.com. If you'd want to tell me what you'd rather spend $3,700 on, I'm at Sherlyn Lowe on Twitter. Email us your thoughts at podcastandengadget.com. Leave us a review, please, on iTunes. And subscribe on anything that gets podcasts.